Welcome to the Panoramic Outdoors Podcast, connecting you to all things outdoors. And welcome to episode 107 of the Panoramic Outdoors podcast here. Today we have on Dave McDonald from the International Canadian School of Survival. That's the ICSOS, little survival acronym there for you. Pretty cool. And uh, ringing in the new year here with Tristan on the other end. Tristan, how's it going, man? Not too bad, not too bad. Just trying to endure the cold snap here that we're experiencing in Manitoba currently. And it's uh, it's almost just as much of a psychological game as it's uh, a physical game at this point in time, I feel like. Definitely, definitely. Um, how are you feeling about the new year? Uh, I'm hopeful here. We've got some exciting things coming up. Uh, you know, like we've got our ice out kind of fishing event that we've talked about. We've got a couple new tents that we got to try out, which I'm excited about. And we got the shack down on the red, which is also good news. We've fished out of a few times and we've already got more action out of that shack than we did all of last year. So with a, just a slight relocate, um, things are looking good. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, man. It's uh, I, I'm, I've definitely enjoyed the shack a little bit. Looking forward to putting some more work in on that. I might uh, I might pop up the, the old... Uh, shacks from harvester there this weekend we'll see we'll see if i have time tomorrow to do it um but if not uh following weeks here throughout january i think we're going to be pretty committed to spending a lot of time in that baby um i'm curious are are you one of the those people who like make uh the big new year's resolutions and do the life-changing promises on uh on december 31st hopping into the new year yeah i've never been too effective at that so i've just kind of yeah if uh if i'm gonna make a change i just try to make a plan around it and get it done when i need to not uh i i'm not i'm less of a new year new me kind of person so yeah i I don't know how about you uh not really I, i tend to try and make some changes in my life uh prior to or just whenever i see fit but um I do have one thing that I can promise will help everybody listen to this podcast in the new year. And it's funny you're talking about minus 30 because um, if anyone hasn't checked out Wool Love yet, you know, their their uh, merino wool comfort system pretty much is what they should be called because their mm-hmm. their base layer system keeps you warm, keeps your temperature regulated. So it keeps it cool and you need to be cool as well. And uh, second part is, have you ever heard of the Northvolt project? I, you know what I, I was saying that I wasn't familiar until I kind of put the pieces together that they're actually connected, and I'm super excited to hear that because I know what they're coming out with with the Northvolt is something that we had kind of been um, putting our heads together around, just saying that we needed something a little bit more hardy in mm-hmm. some ways, eh? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a little thicker. They they call it a mid layer, and it's actually uh, they've mixed in some spandex with the uh, 
with the uh, uh, merino wool there so it's nice and stretchy it, it fits a little tighter to your body and uh really comfy stuff fashionable looking stuff as well so um, if you guys are interested in upping your comfort level honestly you don't know what you're missing out on until you actually have this stuff on your body and you're you're using putting it to work so uh, do yourself a favor in the new year make a promise that you can keep and that is increasing your comfort levels in the outdoors this this year head over to wool.love and uh, pick yourself up some wool love or some north wool clothing today yeah and i've also hit the point again where we're in that time of year where i'm wearing the wool love just around the house again yeah it's the uh the lounging slash active base wear so there's there's lots of options for where you wear your wool love yeah i don't know what it is man there's some weird relationship between like uh the seasonal changes and uh the temperature that i enjoy my household at because uh like summertime i like got the ac cranked in the house nice and cool and then in the winter time the fireplace is on full blast and it's way hotter than i would ever (laughs) endure any summertime temps you know what i mean so i think it's the humidity probably yeah could likely be that for sure who knows yeah anyways um ice fishing man i'm looking forward to that do you have any uh any plans besides just getting out on the lake and the river this this winter? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the lake tomorrow. So our our house down our household's been locked down with the the sniffles lately, but uh, that's finally resolved. So nice. It's uh, I'm, I've been going a little squirrely lately, so it, it's gonna be exciting to just get out and punch some holes and get a you know have a chance at a, a trophy class walleye. So hitting Lake Winnipeg tomorrow gonna do my best to catch a few fish but also to get a little r&r in while i'm at it yeah right on it's definitely a little bit hectic after the holidays it's a nice uh refreshing change to to get out on that lake for sure how about you um you know what just just look some local fishing over the next little while here no big trips planned i'd like to get out for some lakers as we usually do into the to the white shell there um, that's always a trip I look forward to, but, uh, right now I think I just want to try and get on some walleye and put the new tents to the test and, uh, try out yeah. some other gear that we're going to be using out using this year. So, yeah. How are we going to get back there? Uh, you're talking about the, the George Lake run there. Yeah. Out by Pointe de Bois. And I'm just thinking we had a pretty tough go last time with, with my snowmobile, you and I both doubled up on a the 550 fan kind of kind of reminded me of dumb and dumber there <laughs> they're oh, rolling yeah. around on the on the mini on bike the moped. yeah 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 exactly and the suspension was probably a little overworked to a couple big guys on that sled yeah so we might have to rethink our entry strategy and it was getting a little dicey there at some points i think yeah that's always a tough one uh especially if this if the snowpack isn't too bad you know a guy can run a we can take the six-wheeler in there if it's running to uh, to make a day of it but um ice conditions and uh the the snowpack definitely are a factor on that one so oh yeah ideally that's your transportation and and usually in the spring once things start melting and that ice is still 
kind of good. That's when it's more favorable to get back in there. But Carly, uh, Carly was testing out her dry shots today, and she said they're they're definitely warmer than she's got a pair of mucks. Oh yeah. So she's already remarking on how much warmer they are than the than the muck boots. She's taking Willie for a walk there. Oh, so. nice. That's good to hear. Yeah, especially this time of year, right? So yeah, that's a good comparison too, because I think she had like the the comparable muck boot style to what uh, she has in the in the dry shods, right? So yeah, boot to boot. There you go. How, dry shods how, winning the game. Yeah. How are your little? Uh, you got your little like uh, sod busters. Sod busters is yeah. that what they're called? Yeah. They look sleek. If you haven't seen these things, you got to Google them. Sod busters? Yeah, they're sod busters. Man, I was kicking myself for not getting a pair after you showed up in those things. I was like, that's exactly what I've been looking for. Something yeah. that's like a little bit more rugged that is like a croc with all the benefits of like a, a muck boot. Yeah, no, they're awesome. Man. Or like a, a dry shot boot too, right? So Yeah, they're great. Um, I've been cruising around, got the wool socks rocking in them. And uh, they're they're warm enough to like wear for like uh like in the minus 30 here today i was walking the dog in them felt good um and they're they're super grippy like on the ice they're really great compared to like the rest of my shoes or like if you put on like a cheap boot or something like that and they're uh they're they're nice to walk around in so um yeah, that's that, that's the other thing carly noticed was that the rubber was different on these these boots so they they had better traction in the cold yeah which is i i mean for where we are is good news i would say yeah there's nothing worse than having those those hard rubber boots that just turn to freaking ice slicks when that when the temperature drops yeah yeah so i'm gonna have to look up these sod buster things because they they look slick yeah they're pretty and, sweet and yeah uh, and like they're gonna be great for like whitetail hunting archery hunting whitetail you know not too many spots that we have to do too far of a hike. So throw those babies on, head, head into the stand and they're super easy to, to put on and, uh, get going. So, uh, I already see myself like sipping coffee in my wool love base layer with the sod busters on and just not giving any flying fucks yeah. about what's going on. <laughs> oh no, they're awesome, man. They're great. Maybe a, bl- maybe a blaze orange pano hat. Yeah. If you guys are interested in picking up a pair of these boots that we're talking about, head over to dryshodcanada.ca and uh, check out their full selection of their boots there. They have all kinds of stuff. They have the CSA-approved steel-toed workwear stuff and uh, everything for outdoors or on the farm or just like like me, everyday living with the the old sod busters, whatever you need. Check them out. Let me tell you, um, also very appreciative of the, the dry shod products, but also appreciative of the, the reality that, uh, we got Dave on the, the podcast here. Yeah. And, uh, what a, what a pleasant surprise Dave was. And I, I, I guess I shouldn't really be surprised cause he's been at it for so long, but, uh, just the, the knowledge he brought with him to, to survival and basically doing anything outdoors like you and I were talking, I had about a million questions for Dave. Unfortunately, like the podcast already ran long. So mm-hmm. there wasn't, uh, we'll have to have him on again is what it comes down to, I think. But I, just I, yeah, something something to be said about uh, a guest that can, can rope you in like that. Yeah. No, I think uh, 
it's it's almost like I feel like Dave is almost like a a hidden gem. I, I think you could call him, or like like a, I I I don't know. I just feel like what he's doing is very important, and there's not enough people taking advantage of of his services. I think. Mm-hmm. I think like some of the skills and stuff that he teaches in the in the survival courses and and the outdoor ed stuff is is uh, just you know it's some of the most valuable stuff you can you can learn as as uh, as an outdoorsman or just as somebody who spends you know wants to wander outside even if you don't want to get too serious about it you know it's 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 uh, a good way to just like he says in the podcast build your confidence and. Uh, get out there well and he was saying too he's got all kinds of content up on his instagram too like free tips and tricks on how to how to even just get that skill level up just a little bit right obviously he does more in-depth stuff in his course but um seems like a really effective way to to even engage so maybe if you're you're looking for a good follow on instagram you know they handle survival by training kind of might be your your pick there right yeah there you go. So, so yeah, um, but it's listed as the the International Canadian School of Survival. So, yeah, he's got. I, I'm just browsing through right now too, and he's got all kinds of like the first nine slides has got to be tips and tricks here. So, if if you're if you're either looking at for the survival game or just to get some base awareness, like I mean, it seems like an obvious no brainer to me. Yeah, it's uh, you know, I don't know if I said this on the podcast or if it was after the podcast when we were chatting with him and you know, I was, I was in the the aviation industry for 10 years there. And I can't believe that we never went through even like a, a beginner's course like this. And mm-hmm. I mean, I was fortunate enough to grow up in the outdoors and I, I, I probably know a fraction of the stuff that, that Dave would have been able to teach me, but you know, there's, there's other people that are, you know, not so wilderness savvy, we'll say that are in that industry, which is completely fine. But like lots of the remote work that happens, you know, you're over remote areas. So if, if uh, shit goes south, it would be priceless to have this training. Right. And for some of the price points that he offers is, uh, you know, it's, I don't know how you would say no to it. So, yeah. Yeah. A couple interest. You did talk about that in the, in the podcast, but the other thing too that we kind of touched on too is just how valuable this training would be just in your regular day life. So not even just when you're going out into the bush or going out on sea, whatever. But there's this there's as you'll see there's a framework here that Dave applies or helps you apply that can prepare you for pretty much any situation you might encounter. So it's really cool to think about how those philosophies can be shifted and manipulated to help you in in a multitude of settings in your life yeah absolutely you certainly got the resume to back it all up too so without further ado on to the main event Right, and today we have the pleasure of uh, Dave McDonald from the International Canadian School of Survival joining us on the podcast. Did I get that uh, the title right on the company there, Dave? Yeah, you did. Uh, 
you know, a Mex military. So acronyms is all about acronyms, right? I C S O S. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah. You got the S O S in there. I didn't yeah. even, I didn't even, uh, recognize that earlier. And, uh, so Dave, your, your background here, why we brought you on today, you, you've obviously have some extensive, uh, history and, uh, search and rescue, uh, efforts and, We'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, you you currently run the International Canadian School of Survival in Manitoba here, and uh, we'll also dive into that a little bit. But right now, we're going to do our little get-to-know-you session of the five burning questions here, and uh, I'm eager to hear some of the, the answers here. Um, <laughs> Shoot the puck. Yeah, so a lot of the stuff that I see kind of on your Instagram feed, too, is, is like uh, some of the, obviously closely related to a lot of our interests as well as outdoor folks um so first question is what's your favorite wild food mm, good question i have to say moose moose yeah nice. for sure nice and if you if you're going to pair that up with something for a supper what would you uh how would you put that together and what would you wash it down with uh probably uh chanterelles wild chanterelles or lobster mushrooms with wild rice and then i'd probably wash it down with a ryan coke Ooh, if i could nice <laughs> that's uh, allowed on here that's, yeah that's, that's very much allowed <laughs> <laughs> uh your favorite wood to burn um i would say hard maple in southern ontario okay that's an interesting answer um, do you do quite a bit of, uh, I, I guess, uh, outdoor stuff down that way? Uh, well, I lived there for, grew up there and lived there and had a wood stove. I always have a wood stove in every one of my houses just as a backup mm -hmm. and supplement. But uh, yeah, lots of adventures down there as a kid running around the Bay of Quinney. Nice, nice. When did you, Ontario. What, when did you move to Manitoba? I moved to Manitoba in... 99 interesting i got stationed at uh four or uh 435 squadron search and rescue okay out of winnipeg gotcha right on lived in toulon for a few years and then moved out here to lactabani nice um what's the is it with the maple there is it the btus that you like out of it or is that the burns long i'm assuming too yeah it burns long and uh puts off really good heat um uh it's not that dirty of a wood like tamarack or something <laughs> oh yeah or birch possibly um i just could probably because it was there and i had it and it would burn so long and so hot it was great to heat the house with yeah so what do you fall back on now that you don't have access to that maybe uh now it's uh spruce and uh tamarack Oh yeah, some birch, some birch mixed in. Yeah, we like burning tamarack too, but you're saying it's a little, obviously, a little dirtier than that maple you're talking about. Yeah, and it, it burns so hot, so fast, it has a tendency to crack all your bricks mm. in your stove. I find my bricks disintegrate pretty quick here. No kidding, that's uh, that's news to me. I've uh, I obviously don't have a whole bunch of experience with the uh, with trying out different woods, but. Uh, that's that's interesting. I've never heard that before. You know what? Now that I think about it, I, I used to burn a lot of tamarack, and I had a similar experience with my bricks cracking, and I just didn't mm. put that together. And I guess that's uh, it's, you got experience with that, obviously. So, well, that's the only thing I can attribute it to changing yeah. bricks so much, right? Yeah, yeah. 
Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, and I, I, I gather by your uh, by your experience here, Dave, that you've spent your fair amount of time in uh, numerous different survival shelters. What would be your favorite one to uh, to construct and, and uh, stay in if you had to pick one? I'm talking to you from it right now. <laughs> <laughs> looks pretty cozy in there <laughs> yeah it's my survival shelter in life right um <laughs> it really de- would depend on the season um but a basic uh lean-to tarp lean-to is one of the easiest to construct fastest right. right so i guess in a survival situation that that makes the most sense too when you're when you're thinking about getting dry and getting shelter right yeah it needs to be easy and there's <laughs> you know, principles I like to include in my shelter building for emergency shelters. So they lean to, uh, especially with a double layer, definitely incorporates all four of the nice of the specifics I want really. Nice. Principles. Interesting. Do you, uh, do you want to share what those four principles are? I'm curious now. Sure. <laughs> Waterproof uh, rain shedding material, mm-hmm. uh, dead air space, so that's add some so, insulation factor in there. Is that what the yeah, dead air space sure. is? Yeah. Um, angularity. So 45 to 55 because it sheds all the precipitation, the majority of it. Right. And then tightness of materials. Okay. So the tighter the material is, the less the rain is going to come through or the moisture is going to come through with that angles, right. with those angles, 45 to 55. Even a cotton bed sheet could be used to get rid of precipitation. Or to keep it off you if you put it at the right angle and stretched it tight enough. Oh, interesting. Very interesting. That could be... Uh, that, that's kind of how our canvas tent works, I'm guessing. Yes, very similar, yes. Yeah. We want that angle, right? Flat roof is going to... Everything's going to sit on it. If it's sagging, if the material's not tight and it's sagging, the wind is going to uh, tear it. Tear your grommets, uh, put holes in it against the wood. Um, and the water or moisture will accumulate in pockets and it will eventually seep through hmm. as Make- water always does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It always finds a way. Hey, yeah, for sure. Um, non-survival related question here. Not sh- too sure if you're a music man at all, but what, uh, if you could see one band in concert for the last time dead or alive, who would you go see? Uh, Rush. Oh, nice. Good answer. Yeah. Good answer. Especially, especially if I get them to play the old stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be common among uh among lots of lots of bands, right? Their their old stuff is the good stuff. And then uh, our final five burning questions. If you could go into the woods with anybody to uh do some backcountry camping, who would you go with? Oh, good question. Mm, probably my buddy Brett, because he already went on a moose hunt with me and I know he can handle himself and I've done quite a few uh, shows with him. Um, yeah, he's just very capable and obviously uh, got great filming uh, capabilities as well. <laughs> awesome. What shows was uh, Brett involved with? Uh, Disney show. I think it's Man, Woman, Dog. We did four episodes on that, I think. And then uh, what else I worked with him on? Uh He's filmed with me for the moose hunt. I just posted that on Instagram not too long ago. Um, and then we did a couple other ones as well. Uh, Seven Days in Hell was another one. That was him and his buddy uh, reliving 
survival incidents mm. uh, within Canada using period equipment and all the rest of it. It was pretty neat. Um, yeah, done a cool. few shows with them now. Helped out quite a bit. Did safety, medic kind of thing. Nice. Interesting. It's interesting once you're in that situation and a live or die situation, maybe how some of your priorities would shift a little and who uh, who's accompanying you into the into the woods or out of the woods in that case. Yeah, you really can't forecast that until you get into the situation. Because mm-hmm. I've I know people and have seen people that look like they have their act together, and then uh, you get into a situation and they wig out, lose it, right? And then the person you thought that was just pretty much going to be useless in that situation steps up and takes over, which is amazing to see. Mm-hmm. Very surprising. Yeah. The stress of, uh, of all that definitely changes people for sure. Um, before we get into the meat and potatoes here, Dave, I'm curious, we're, we're into like uh, our first big cold snap here in Manitoba over the winter. And, and uh, for those people that are listening that aren't from Manitoba, we're, where uh, nighttime lows are around minus 30 degrees Celsius. So pretty chilly out there. Does, does the cold get you excited at all for doing survival stuff or how do you, how do you, uh, what's, what's your most, ex- like uh, your favorite time of year to, to get out and do this stuff? Well, I like it when there's uh, not too many mosquitoes and not too many ticks and the sun's not uh, trying to melt me. So uh, anywhere from fall, early fall archery season right through to May, June mushroom picking. Mm-hmm. It's nice. all good, man. I love all the seasons. Uh, of course, I love taking a break in the summer and uh, going for swims in the lake and canoe trips and stuff as well. But uh, yeah, right yeah. on. Sounds like you're I like you're uh, yeah, right, right in line with us pretty much. The heat, the heat's good for uh, for a good swim, but uh, falls and springs <laughs> yeah. is definitely the best time to be in the woods. Maybe drinking a few beer. Hey, we've tossed a couple back as well. There's nothing wrong with that. Now, uh, so you you obviously have some history in the uh, search and rescue world here. Um, how did how did all this start for you? So, reading from your website, you were a SAR tech with the Royal Canadian Air Force. How did how how did you get involved with that? Well, I guess. Um... I don't know. When I was young, I watched a few films and kind of got it in my head about adventure. So then uh, when I went around 11 years old, I joined Army Cadets and I spent uh, six, seven years in Army Cadets and um, did like two week camps and six week camps. And then I went for uh, two week instructor training and then I instructed six week camps. And then I went from that and took a year off. Uh, and then I joined the Toronto Scottish Infantry Reserves. So again, seeking adventure, right, and camaraderie and everything I kind of got from the Army Cadet program. And then uh, from there, well, it was a natural progression to move into the regular military mm-hmm. full time. So I signed like a two-year contract or three-year contract first, I think, as a weapons tech land. So I fixed everything from 9 millimeter pistols up to... 155 millimeter howitzers on a tank body. Wow. Um, which was fun. We also did, they also called us Coleman techs because we fixed Coleman stoves and lanterns as well, <laughs> more than we did anything. Um, <laughs> Maybe a le- the less glorified uh, part yeah, of the job. <laughs> for sure. You know, the army guys got to rub it in whenever they can, eh? Yeah. That's the boundaries, right? <laughs> um, 
And then uh, I did six years pretty much as a weapons tech land in Belcartier, Quebec, because I, out of 10 people on my weapons tech course, I was the only one who asked to go to Quebec. And some of those guys were French, but they wanted to do adventures in other places in Canada. Mm, right. But uh, nine out of 10 got posted to Quebec. <laughs> only <laughs> one guy got posted outside of Quebec. Jeez. So I did six years in Valcartier, Quebec, which was a great experience. Um, and then uh, I joined Search and Rescue, uh, applied for Search and Rescue, Reg Force, got accepted in 93, uh, did my basic SARTEC course, then passed it. And uh, did 19 years as a search and rescue technician. Wow. And I did the last five and a half years at the Air Force Survival School. Wow, that's amazing. So, when that's, uh, sure. that's quite the resume. Um, when when you get into the, the SARTEC world, what is, what is the, I guess, I, I don't want to say day-to-day -day look like, but what is your, say, like a, a regular work week look like for you there? Like, are you doing the same day, daily thing or is there, I imagine there's quite a bit of training involved and, and all kinds yeah. of stuff, right? Chase, can we, can we, can we back it up even further and just like explain what SARTEC is and maybe what some of that training even looks like? Totally. Let's do that. Yeah. So search and rescue technicians, I think there's like 130 full-time search and rescue technicians out there. Um, high injury rate <laughs> because all the things they do. <clears throat> Um, turnovers as well because of injuries and such. Um, but uh, basically they do uh, both fixed wing. So like the C-130 Hercules, fly around in those and go to calls or ELTs, emergency locator transmitters that are going off, PLBs, personal locator beacons, sightings of aircraft going down, kind of things like that, boating accidents. Um, and they cover a massive area. And then they also have rotary wing, which is the helicopters. And we have those in certain places as well, so that we have an asset to pick up our assets. Um, but we also use a lot of civilian agencies as well. And then um, we do high angle rock rescue, low angle rock rescue, because sometimes people get themselves into hairy areas, um, harsh environments. So we need to be able to get pick them off or get them off there somehow. And then we also do uh, overturn vessel extrication. So a boat flips over and there's people trapped inside, which is an extremely dangerous situation because of everything's upside down, floating around, toxic uh, chemicals in the water and in the atmosphere, nets everywhere. It's highly hazardous, high sea state typically. Mm-hmm. Um, we uh, we lost a, a firefighter out east, I think, this year already from a, a recovery mission with a, a capsized boat. The, do you guys recall that? I'm trying to think of. Uh, I don't. I don't remember hearing about it. But um, if you find it, send it to me. That'd be great. And because I always like posting articles like that on the Facebook page and stuff. But um, yeah, that's. And then they're also uh, kind of paramedic. So between a level two and three paramedics. So they do IV drugs, but not the cardiac drugs. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, they're also supposed to be the survival expert as well on the aircraft. And they do uh, uh, static line parachuting as well as free fall parachuting. Typically, uh, they'll do uh, low altitude drops because the weather drops down and they've got full equipment, which is medical gear, survival gear, 
firearm, possibly snowshoes all strapped to them. Yeah, that's wild. The exit the aircraft. I remember uh, a, a few years ago, um, a fella that when I was in the aviation industry, and the aviation industry isn't isn't too big of a um, an industry, so you, you most people who fly you you either heard their name before or you know who they are kind of thing. And uh, a yeah. fellow we know got stranded on a lake and it was, it was, uh, wasn't a bad situation. He just stopped for a leak, I think. And his, his, uh, plane went and start back up. And then, the I remember that. Yeah. And, uh, the Sartex came ripping in there is low ceiling. And I think it might've even been at night or early morning or something. And <laughs> I remember the guy telling us he couldn't believe that those guys came ripping through the clouds like that and, and, uh, made it to him. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, people are usually happy to see you. Yeah, no kidding. So uh, that's why I teach the uh, survival, so that you can survive and the boys can jump in and you at least have some tea on for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Fire going, tea on, shelter yeah. built. Yeah. A little Labrador tea maybe, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, um, Dave, just regarding the training too, it, A, it sounds like it's quite extensive training. Um, but B, it also seems like a lot of the survival training seems to emanate out of like either the military or um, some sort of um, forces um, background. I'm even thinking, looking at some of the prominent books like the SAS training on uh, survival. Is is there uh, a reason or a relationship between those those organizations and their need to to train to that degree? I'm glad you asked that question. That's that's uh, that's amazing that you asked that. There is a big difference. The reason. The military is so successful at at least short-term survival, like 72 hours, um, is because they send instructors around the world and they go to subject matter experts and they learn from them, whether it's civilian or a trapper or some type of outdoors person. Um, And they also send their instructors, the Canadian military send their instructors to all the other survival schools around the world, military ones because they know they're drawn subject matter experts to get the information to put together the curriculum that will best supply their um, members with some sort of protection. So it's really the, like this methodical kind of uh, continuing ongoing research and application circle that kind of occurs within the military is what you're saying? Yes, and, and they have exceptional accident investigation reporting, submitting, and then they bring back uh best principles right yeah which is amazing and and i'm guessing too the military doesn't necessarily need to sell it or sell books or anything like that so they're they're may probably pretty interested in pragmatic survival i would guess exactly yes yeah that's cool chase Uh, did i cut you off there buddy no that's that's totally fine (laughs) good question (laughs) um um, I, I kind of wanted to dive into the extensive training a little bit like you 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 rattle off uh, a lot of a lot of uh training and a, a huge um plethora of like what i would call skill sets and it, it, when i think about some of those things like the the rock rescue and parachuting like that's seems like some pretty specialized stuff it, it does do most sartex uh are they trained to uh cover all of that or do they specialize are they their specialized groups that go after some of these uh rescue situations uh the military Sartrex are trained to do all of it. Wow. 
the volunteer organizations sometimes have specialized units. Gotcha. Um, I, I'm going to touch on that in a bit, but um, how long does uh was uh does a Sartec training usually take for to get uh, to your, I guess, uh, to the highest level where you can go out and do all this stuff? It seems like uh, yep. it would take a while. Once you pass your Sartec course, which is I think now about nine months long, um, then you do on-the-job training for at least a year. Yeah. And that includes uh, annual currencies, quarterly currencies, semi-annual currencies. And then uh, you go back for a team member course and then you get promoted to team member or they take you for a check ride and you do all the team member duties and right. then you're qualified to be a team member. Check you out. And I imagine the training after that, just recurrency stuff and, and all that is is quite extensive as well because it seems like lots of the that those situations you know you'd have to be on top of stuff to you know there's not a lot of room for error in a lot of that training no and they've got it down pat because they give you a checklist that you have to do in order to meet those currencies and get to the next level which would be team leader right you're leading the mission in the back two of you right that's cool so when you when you guys head out in the herc we'll say was that sorry? Was that what you you mainly uh, did? Ran your missions out of was uh, the C one thirties? Yeah, I ran C one thirties or worked out of C one thirties both in Trenton, Ontario, and Winnipeg. Awesome. So when, twelve years on C one thirties. Amazing. So when you guys ran out of the C one thirties, how big of a crew did you guys usually have in there with you? So we had the pilot, co-pilot, um, the engineer. Um, the navigator, which they call them something else now, the load master, and then a team lead team member. Hmm. And then sometimes we would draw on civilian agencies like Casera mm-hmm. to provide us with qualified spotters. Right. Somebody look out the window for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there is there is a, uh, a civilian aspect to that, but as far as the guys heading into the, into the shit, we'll say, there's only two of you guys on board that are going to be getting out pretty much yeah most most majority of the time there was two on board yeah yeah maybe you'd take a third if he was there or he came in uh fast enough because we needed the extra hands right 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 we yeah. might wait for somebody but that's about it interesting two guys a team lead and a team member the buddy system which is another aspect that i teach always the buddy system right okay yeah i I was curious about that it's i'm getting the sense that a things evolve very rapidly within the survival world but also especially when we're looking at responses but also you mentioned team quite a few times here dave can you can you explain how important that team dynamic is is and like maybe some of your on the ground experience of what it means to be a team or maybe some examples where teams haven't gone so well (laughs) um okay so um the military, the army, especially, right? You do teams of two. It's called your fire team partner. You do pepper potting with the your fire team partner. Um, the air force does uh, partners, right? Team lead, team member in search and rescue, um, pilot, co-pilot. So again, we have two sources, right, that go by, and they kind of cross heads and work out problems and stuff, which is great. Um, the other thing is aspect is if you're out by yourself and you slip and hit your head and go unconscious at minus 30, who's there to help you? Who's there to look for you, right? Like who, 
is going to start the fire and get a shelter and get a bow bed and stuff. It's, I find it very important you go out as a team of two. The other thing is, too, even in covert survival, like escape and evasion, teams of two and teams of three could evade and move quickly. Um, whereas if you added a fourth person or there was only one person, they had a tendency to move quite a bit slower, huh. those teams. Interesting. So there's some there's some morale or I'm guessing some psychological aspects that play into that as well. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. And then have, have you been part of things where maybe, uh, you, I'm guessing that the dynamic between those two is very important then too. Like you have to be able to trust each other to quite a high degree. Is there, is there stuff in survival that you do either intentionally or um, subconsciously even to, to kind of help support that team dynamic? Uh, yeah, I trust them, but I also verify. Interesting. So I ask you, or how are your feet? And you're going to tell me you're good. Um, and I'm going to get you to sit down and take off your boots by the fire so I can actually physically look at your feet and feel them to see if you're good. Mm -hmm. Same with dehydration. I'm going to say it. When's the last time you drank water? Oh, I just drank some. Well, when you're not looking, I'm going to go over and check your water bottle. <laughs> right? Because dehydration is the number one injury in the bush. If you're not staying hydrated, then... Uh, that's the catalyst for most other injuries, like trip injuries and cut injuries, burn injuries, is because you're dehydrated, especially in the winter, because people don't think to yeah to drink yeah enough you're, water. You're cold, and you don't want to put put another cold substance in your body, right? Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so through your through your journey through the military, you you've, you recognize a gap in in the system here, kind of where. Um, obviously you, you've seen lots of situations that, that people were getting in that, you know, some survival training would have gone a long way. I'm sure. Is that, is that fair to say? Is that how that happened? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, fear, fear can be debilitating. You can curl up in the fetal position and cry, or you can overcome that fear with knowledge and training and stand up and get a fire going and put some ground to air signals out mm -hmm. and get a shelter up, get some tea on. So, yeah, I, I was looking through, through your, through your website and you, you have a, a, a wide range of courses that you offer on there. Um, right up to like expert skill levels stuff. What, how, how, how beneficial do you think just the basic survival course would help people who go go out and potentially have to face these situations okay so i pretty much fashioned it after all our all our training after what the military teaches i have added some things and taken away a few things like you don't have to do push-ups if you fall asleep in my class <laughs> <laughs> but um it's all the basic things the level one is all the basic things that you should know like search and rescue patterns because they can really enable you to uh, signal for help a lot better, quicken things up. Um, it'll add confidence because you know how the search and rescue system works, timelines, kind of resources available, um, and you'll know enough to leave a trip plan, which is very important, right? Because if mm -hmm. they don't know where you are, they won't know where to search for you. Um, I'm basically teaching you everything that the Air Force teaches because they're the ones who do the majority of the remote remote rescue, search and rescue. So if you know what they know, you guys should be able to hook up safer and faster for both parties. Yeah. 
So having and uh, tried and tested. Yeah. Well, it makes a lot of sense. If if you're somebody who goes out and, and just relies on the search and rescue to find you just because, you know, you guys have the training and, and all that, that that's, everyone is highly trained who, who goes on, on those missions. But like, if, if you know how, how that the other end is operating and how to communicate properly with them, I, I, that I could see how that would just vastly improve your odds to well, vastly improve your odds for sure. To save your, for sure. We don't want well, to use search and rescue, right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to drag those guys out of bed in the middle of the night or away from their kid's birthday party or any bullshit like that, right? We don't want to drag them out if we don't have to. So what I'm trying to really teach here is how to self-rescue, mm-hmm. how to quicken things up or self-rescue, which is super important. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. Oh, no, no problem. I, I was going to say, just mention that we had a bit of an aha moment this fall, I would say. And uh, we would, I would fancy us maybe a little bit more bush wise than your your average bear will say. Um, maybe someone who just doesn't go camping or fishing or hunting much. Uh, we were going down some rapids on a canoe in a, in a northern remote location in Manitoba this this fall. And the canoe went sideways, caught a rock caught some water and within 30 seconds our canoe was wrecked uh we were we managed to get the shore but like a bunch of our stuff was spilled luckily we had two canoes chases in the other canoe um but it just goes to show you know we we thought we were experienced we didn't have a lot of experience with that area necessarily but things turn sideways so quickly and when you're out of communication with uh with the regular world things can uh things the uh the x factor ramps up i would say so yeah, yeah, yeah i uh i can i can sense already some of the the training that i wish i would have had in in that scenario we we got out of there just fine we managed to patch the canoe and get back upstream but had we not things might it might have been go- going a little differently that night we'll say well you guys are experienced and it obviously shows because two is one one is none right if you got two canoes, then at least everybody can get into one to get down river if one gets destroyed. But if you're only in one canoe, you know, there's no more going farther, right? Unless you can patch it or fix it somehow. There's not yeah. much of a plan B. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> well, and and just to be clear, to get home, we have to go up river, Dave. So things were even a little bit more complicated than <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. That would yeah. complicate it considerably. Yeah. But um, we did have a few redundancies in place, which we were really happy about. Like we had some of the satellite communications that, you know, if things got really out of hand, we could have at least got our coordinates out to someone. But again, it was just a really stark reminder of how quickly thing and just having a core level of skills. The other thing that we did that uh, we mentioned in our other podcast is um, a few of the other guys just kicked into the action in a really calm manner. So that calming kind of, action was very helpful i I would say in that situation and let us kind of just calm down and reset a little yeah that's that's exactly why i teach that acronym stop right sit think observe and plan you need to calm down take your time sit down have a drink of water some food think about what happened what's happening now what needs to happen observe your situation for equipment resources uh personnel um, and then come up with a plan. And then okay. I use this survival pattern to set the plan, which is fabulous. Cool. It sounds like we followed some of those steps, eh, Chase? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And the kind of, uh, the, the cool thing was that it kind of evolved as our situation evolved as well. Like, for instance, we didn't think that canoe was coming off the rock, but it did. Yeah. You got it <laughs> off, eh? Yeah. And we managed to actually, uh, it was folded up like a taco when we got it off, but we managed to stomp it out and put some goop on it, on the cracks, and uh, we rode it for what? the rest, rest of the week. Was it Royal X or something? Uh, the canoe? Yeah. It was just an aluminum canoe. Oh, it was aluminum, eh? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, we got lucky. You got lucky. Yeah. So, I, I think, uh, you know, just, just by going through your website, Dave, it is pretty interesting to, like, put some of the pieces together of, like, how kind of survival works and how the training works, pretty much. Because, like, I, I've never had really any formal survival training besides, you know, reading a bushcraft book watching some bushcraft videos on youtube that kind of thing and then i read through some of the stuff on your website and it's 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 pretty interesting to see like it makes you think and it makes you realize how practical the the training is and how useful it can be because and one of the things that that stood out to me the most on your website was uh this little slogan here that you had at the one at the bottom of one of your pages and you touched on it earlier a couple minutes ago here that said navigation training is survival prevention Survival training is first aid prevention, and first aid training is suffering prevention. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit for us? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, navigation, right? You're out mushroom picking, or you're out tracking a deer, or you're out wrecking in a new area for hunting or whatever, and you get disoriented. It's a cloudy day, right? With navigation skills, I just press go to on my GPS. It gives me a bearing and distance, and I walk right back out to my vehicle. But if I didn't have those navigation tools and the knowledge on how to use them, I'd be wandering around that bush for a while trying to figure things out or listening for a while and putting myself in jeopardy. So really, if you don't get lost, you don't usually end up in a survival situation. Right. And then survival training, if you have the proper training and techniques and knowledge, you won't suffer from the environmental injuries because you're going to get a fire going. You're going to build a shelter. You're going to put out some signals so that you you get picked up sooner. Mm -hmm. um, and then first aid training, well, sometimes shit happens, right? Yeah. You get injured, you need the first aid. And typically, who do we end up doing first aid on? Ourselves. Ourselves or a family member, mm -hmm. right? Coworker, whatever. So it's great to have first aid knowledge, experience, and equipment. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And uh, it, it kind of rings true to like even something like you mentioned before too. When I'm thinking about the survival training aspect of it, prevents the first aid, pre uh, um, is first aid prevention. Just like you said earlier, just drinking, making sure you have enough water in the in your system, right? Like that stuff is is practical, simple, but not something you think about lots when you're in one of those situations, likely because your mind's elsewhere a lot, a lot of times, right? And that's why it's good to have a buddy because if both of you are thinking water all the time, then you're going to stay hydrated all the time. But yeah. Yeah. Hey, just you by heard, yourself. You heard it here first, Chase. If I ever get lost in the bush, I'm taking you with me. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, Dave, uh, I, I'm getting the sense that there's, there's several steps to your courses here and you can kind of progress as you, as you want to go along. But I, I'm wondering if too, if you could kind of, step back and explain the larger picture to us here. I, I even heard you 
explain kind of characterize your house as a survival vessel for you i'm guessing that survival isn't just something you go and sit in the bush and play on with on the weekend it's it's kind of a way of life or an outlook a philosophy of ways can, can you kind of explain that philosophy to us and what it means to to survive for sure um I kind of, I, I use the survival pattern in my day-to-day -day life. I use the survival pattern to assess students. I use the survival pattern to assess resources. I use the survival pattern to uh, set up my training. I use the survival pattern when I pack my bug out bag or get home bag or tripping bag, because it's all the same bag. I use the survival pattern to, uh, run through my clothing and equipment as well so i can figure out multiple uses for it and see if it'll stand up to the environment um so even with my house i kind of use the survival pattern uh to choose kind of where i live to a degree and then i look around my area and i look for hazards what are some major hazards what could push me out of my home or uh prevent me from getting out of my home uh, those sorts of things. And the survival pattern goes first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food. So like first aid, for instance, you know, I, I'd like to know uh, how close is the nearest medical facility? How long is the response times on average? How long is my backup medical facility in case one is um, removed from the equation? Um, what are the choke points between me and help? Um, you know, what hazards are there, right? Bridges and whatever else that could get clogged. Um, what's my backup heat source? What's my primary heat source? What's my backup water source? What's my food source? I try and make sure that I have enough food on hand in my home to get my family through an entire Manitoba winter. Uh, just in case, right? Because mm -hmm. I, I don't know, I did 19 years as a search and rescue technician, and I know that things can happen. So I kind of like to try and be overall prepared. Well, and I, I don't think we need any more <clears throat> examples than the, the storm they got in Texas, where lots of folks lost power, and all of a sudden people were freezing to death, or they're becoming hypothermic in their own homes in Texas. Now, that's not something you would normally associate with Texas living, um, but their folks were in a situation where they maybe didn't have the, the level of preparation, or people, didn't, it wasn't in their consciousness yes. that this, this could happen. So what you're alluding to here sounds like just... Uh, methodical way to to have no, not only a plan A but a plan B, C, and possibly even D, um, should you should you need it. That that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and again, the military taught me this survival pattern, the Canadian military. So it works for assessing everything. Yeah, basically, <laughs> that yeah. you need to be prepared. So so if you're and this is interesting too. So if you're going on a, a trip to uh, Tahiti, let's say. You're, you're you're obviously preparing a little different than your your uh, winter pack for uh, a camping and maybe we'll say Lee River or something like that. We had a cabin at Lee River. There's no campgrounds there, but <laughs> um, but obviously I'm guessing there's there's you prepare differently. Um, the other cool thing I was thinking about with survival here is your um, it's so localized in, in so many ways too, right? Uh, in a world where everything's getting so globalized and uh, you know, 
one one person's out competing the rest of them that survival training is so specific on the the geology and the the ecology of the area that uh you're you're in a good position here dave you, you your your services in theory should never go out of demand no 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 and the market's huge um, yeah. but you know the survival pattern you manipulate it to to suit the environment or the emergency and it can be used in any environment urban wilderness desert jungle um, mountains above the tree line below the tree line anywhere on earth okay you can use a survival pattern you just manipulate it maybe i'm above the tree line it's minus 20 20 kilometer an hour winds uh, what's going to jump up on the top? What's my first aid? It's going to be shelter. If I'm in the boreal forest, what's going to jump on top? It's going to be fire. So it can be used whether you're backpacking across Europe or you're in your house, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm thinking too that maybe what some folks might be coming to you for, especially in our area, um, is I might be able to read about the survival pattern, but how it plays out in Manitoba on the ground probably looks a little different. <laughs> than, uh, it is a whole different story, yeah. Than what it's like in a book. I might not want to be making a, a shelter out of, uh, you know, something that's going to, like a burdock or something like that, that's going to cause me a, a great deal of discomfort. Uh, probably, <laughs> you probably have a better idea of what's readily available in the area for me to make my shelter out of than uh, we'll say uh bear grills who's maybe jumping off a cliff somewhere uh, out east well again you would you you would use the basic principles of emergency shelter building and then you would figure out quite quickly what is there in abundance that you could use okay yeah yeah so you're you're taking that principle and and just uh making an on the ground assessment in some ways yes yeah. yes cool and so- then i i'm wondering too is is there a difference in your mind uh, I think you kind of hint at it between survival and subsistence is it, or is it kind of a gray area? Um, do you, do you know what I'm kind of driving at here? It, you mean not... that survive or survive and thrive? Is that what you're kind of talking about? Kind of. Yeah. Like you, it, it seemed like uh, some of the training or some of the objectives with survival is to kind of put off death for as long as possible until people, <laughs> yeah. people find you. But there's other, we know that there's um, historically people have lived in these areas um, with less technology and less tools than, than we're used to. And they, not only they live, they thrive in these environments. Right. So um, how much of survival training, I'm guessing is what I'm asking is putting off death and how much of it are we going to be, one with nature and maybe some Disney um, metaphors in there too. Uh, There's a multitude of benefits from survival training, right? It gives you the confidence now to go out and enjoy nature safely, right? You'll carry minimum equipment and you'll look out for hazards and all that good stuff. So it gets people out of their box. It gets them um, doing adventure and getting out there safely. Um, And then there is also the point you just said that it saves lives right you're putting off death until you can get back to civilization or uh to your comfort zones right um and that adds a whole new confidence level as well you imagine a country that had survival training first aid training and navigation training you imagine a country that's prepared to take care of itself for 72 hours no matter what happens Right. Yeah. If, yeah. if you can look after yourself, now you can help others. Mm-hmm. If you can't look after yourself in an emergency, 
there's no way you can help other people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty wild to think about that perspective of, of how weak something would actually like a uh, society would actually become if like what happened in Texas, right? You just, if you don't have the training or the knowledge to do it, you know, you're, you're, it's hopeless pretty much. Or the know? ice storms in Quebec mm-hmm. or uh, floods in BC, fires in BC, Alberta, Northern Manitoba, Saskatchewan, all of those things, right? If yeah. you have the skills, you can look after yourself and help others. Totally. Totally. And that this kind of like brings me up to one of my, my next questions here for you, Dave. And uh, it, it's based around survival tools. And obviously the training here is the biggest tool that you can uh, equip yourself with going into Definitely. any of these situations. And uh, it, it by far supersedes any other tool that you could possibly have by the sounds of it. But as a trained professional, what are, what are a couple of your favorite tools to take to, to the woods with you? Um, okay. On my person, normally I have uh, a Bic lighter with the child safety latch removed and usually a bright color. So if I drop it, I can find it. Yeah. Um, and the other tool is a folding pocket knife with a locking blade. Hmm. So I don't collapse the blade on my fingers. Yeah. We've been there with some two tools. I can give her for at least 72 hours. Nice. Wow. Do you, do you have a knife that you fall back on or do you, do you just kind of go between whatever's accessible? Uh, no, I usually carry around a, a Swiss army or Equinox, uh, knife. Nice. I like this. I like having the scissors <laughs> and cool. the tweezers and the toothpick. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a uh, luxury, if you will. Yeah. Are, are the but scissors- if, I, if I were, if I were to pick only one tool, um, it would probably be some type of multi-tool. Right. Because I can do a lot more with the multi-tool. Yeah, yeah. Are the scissors uh, 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 a comfort for you around home, or are they? What is? do they have a practical application for you in the in the bush as well? Uh, they have a practical application as well, like, you know, um, trimming things or helping me replace equipment or mm-hmm. make patches or... Um, Cutting the filters off cigarettes, maybe, or uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, toenails too, fingernails. Yeah, yeah, a little personal hygiene stuff. Jeez. Dave, I'm wondering too, within within your career here, you've obviously been at the survival game for for extended period of time. How how long have you been engaged with it? Would would be fair. Well, I guess. Uh, <laughs> Most of my life, to a degree, depends on what you call survival. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, growing up with my grandparents, you know, they got a lot of their food from the land. Okay. Whether they grew it or harvested it, right? Um, And their heating sources and outdoor toilets only. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you had to get up in the middle of the night. You had to go all the way outdoors, right? Yeah. Sit in that cold shack. Um, Yeah. and then the army, army cadets taught me a lot about survival again, because I was outdoors trying to survive the elements basically right up through. Yeah. Yeah. And the, that outdoor toilet and bad once you get on the seat, but I tell you what, getting on the seat is normally the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, want to, uh, I just want to jump back to the Bic lighter thing. I lost my train of thought there for a minute okay, previously while we were there, but, um, 
we did uh, when I was in the aviation industry, we did some uh, our watery grass training. And uh, now tell me if this is one of the reasons why you carry the Bic as well. But he showed us that if you carry Bic lighter, you can actually still light it or after it's been wet. If you, um, I think it, he ran it backwards for a bit and then you just flick it enough and it'll eventually light up. Is that, is that one of your, the reasons why you carry a Bic? Uh, no, I just, because it's contained and easy right, right. and, and I always carry a backup. I have a second one in my bag. Gotcha. Right. And then I have wooden matches in my bag. And then I also have a ferro rod in my bag. Redundancy. Redundancy. Yeah. Two is yeah. one, one is none. So, yeah. um, the Bic lighter is my go-to right away in an emergency. Cause it's just so easy. Yeah. Right. Um, there's only a couple things that can go wrong with it. It gets really, really cold. Mm-hmm. And the vapor turns to a liquid and it won't go. So I can warm it up, whatever, with friction or stick it under my armpit or something, body heat. And the other thing is what you mentioned, if it gets wet, if I can pop the child safety latch off and I can run it over some dry clothing a little bit, that'll dry it a lot faster. Mm -hmm. And then within a couple of flicks, you can light it quite easily. Yeah. Cool. Sorry, Tristan, I cut you off there. No, that's all good. I'm glad you circled back. Is there is there stuff people bring into the bush with them that's extraneous or maybe like what is there is there something they see commonly that you're like, okay, you're probably not going to need that in your pack or that's dead weight or the, the circumstances in which you'll need that piece of equipment is so minute that, you know, just leave it at home, but put it as a paperweight or something. Yeah. Um, you know, again, I carry the same bag for everything. Yeah. I just either add to it under certain conditions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and my bag only weighs maybe 25 pounds Mm -hmm. and then I can still add a lot of food, water and some clothing. Yeah. Uh, most people, it seems were like flies attracted to that or moth attracted to that bug light when it comes to equipment. Yeah. We wanted all the bells and whistles and all the different equipment. And I find the more uh, technology that's involved, the less reliable it is because mother nature wreaks havoc on technology, Mm -hmm. right? Especially electronics, Mm -hmm. batteries and that, just the cold and the moisture and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, So most people are way overburdened with the things they're taking out there. Um, You can also take and supplement from nature to a degree. Yeah. So uh, I got to ask you that because I'm now I'm concerned for my own self. Not only do I go through my, my pack several times a fall and realize all the stuff that I've jammed in there that I probably don't need. Yeah. Um, and it's good that I do that every time I go through it. I'm like, yeah, I don't need that. Um, but this fall, I finally dropped my GPS. Like I, I cut it out of my pack. And the reason I did that was because we use an iHunter uh, app on our phone that for for me, it's just as good as a GPS. Now I'm still, I'm still using a compass and stuff in the pack as well. But am, am I off my rocker here for for dropping the GPS, or do you do you think that the the app? I don't know. Will that app work without uh, cell coverage? Yeah. So it it has a GPS function to it. Um, again, the way I'm seeing it is it's got the same limitations as a GPS with a few more benefits. So I can get a topographic map on this app, which I don't have necessarily for my GPS. Um, I can track my routes and waypoints. Um, but the, the main limitation being the, the battery, 
in both of them. So at least with the GPS, I guess I could replace the batteries, but um, with the cell, I would have to charge it. Yeah, I um, I always carry a GPS because I'm not that tech knowledgeable when it comes to apps and using my phone. Yeah. Um, the GPS, again, I like uh, redundancy. So my headlamp uh, takes AA batteries, one AA battery in my headlamp. So I carry two, right? Two headlamps in case, you know, one goes out or whatever. But, um, and my GPS takes AA batteries. So I only have to carry one battery that's quite popular and I can switch them out as I need them. Whereas if your cell phone dies, if you don't have a way to charge it, you're done. Yeah. Or it breaks or you lose it or... And then yeah. the the GPS is always tethered to my clothing, so I can't lose it. Oh, that's a good point. That's interesting. Yeah, and you'll you'll have to let us know what headlamp you use because that's one of my biggest gripes is that most of these headlamps tend to use these AAA batteries, and it's yeah, just pain, such. Man. Oh man, like I I hate hauling them into the bush. That I'm fumbling with them, especially when it's cold. Like my fingers freeze up, and I'm trying to jam a AAA into this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, what a what a nightmare. Anyways, yeah, thanks for answering that. Yeah, no problem. Um, I'm curious, too. You've talked about hunting and fishing, or I haven't heard anything about fishing. I'm going to assume you fish, though. So oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Does that kind of weave into your uh, into the survival training? I know some folks have commented, some of the stuff I've read has been like, don't even bother trying to catch an animal because you know, the, the, the occurrence of you catching an animal in a, in a survival context is probably pretty low. And then others have full like um, page reviews on how to set up a trap and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm wondering that does the hunting and fishing weave into your survival kind of training and experience at all? Uh, most definitely. And it is included in our food portion of our courses. Um, I do like a wild edible walk and then we go do snares. Okay. Um, and then on the level four, we do a fish net out of 550 cord. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because I try and teach passive food collecting techniques and that includes game, but of course be the opportunist, be the black bear, right? That omnivore, uh, carry something to hunt with as well, right? Either make a small game bow or use rabbit clubs or rabbit sticks, they call them. Um, and then I always put out snares, whether squirrel snares, rabbit snares. And if I had the option, I'd use a net. Mm -hmm. If it was life or limb kind of thing. Yeah. You, you said a bunch of interesting things there, uh, and I'll comment on them. Like, A, I love the black bear analogy, because I, as soon as you said that, it just hit me over the head like a ton of bricks, because it's so true. Um, you look at how adaptive those bears are and yeah. you just know that they're, they're, they're going to survive no matter what um, they can, they can eat everything from a garbage dump all the way to forage for berries and uh, you know, scavenge for meat if they need to, or actually uh, be a predator. They are a predator. Yeah. 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 So it's, it's cool to see just how, um, and I'm guessing that's how we evolved too, right? Is we kind of, we were omnivores. We, we, used a lot of our adaptive skills to get where we are today the the other interesting thing that you were mentioning there too and i'm just trying to recall it now uh you have to remind me what were we chatting about there dave i've gotten lost on black bears <laughs> passive uh food oh, yeah. collecting techniques the, the the passive one because i just get overwhelmed thinking about having to 
even I think of some of my fishing excursions when it's cold outside and the gear I have doesn't even function the way I want it to. So to, to think about trying to actively fish or actively hunt when I'm, I'm in a situation with diminished capacity, diminished uh, technology, um, the, the passive uh, method seems much more applicable to me than trying to actively do some of that stuff. Yeah, because I can uh, set a net and then just check it twice a day. Yeah. Right? And then I have all those other hours to put labor into collecting firewood or doing whatever, something yeah. else anyway. Um, and then if I set snares, I'll set as many snares as I can, and I'll do a loop, and I'll check that twice a day. Interesting. And then so, and you had mentioned earlier too that, you know, it seemed like food was kind of like last on that hierarchy of, of things that we needed to, it was almost like this little Maslow's hierarchy that we needed to pay attention to when we, when we're in a survival situation. Um, first aid being the first and food being the last. It, I'm guessing that's very intentional and that it's, it's part of the method of uh, keeping you safe or reducing as much harm as quickly as possible. Well, we can go four weeks without food. Yeah. I don't want to. I'm going to keep food. <laughs> food is right there at the top of my mind, right? As I'm looking for resources, I'm looking for food. Right. Even if I have a bunch of food, I'm still looking to supplement my food in a survival situation or an emergency situation, right? Good I've point. always, even when I go camping, I can't help myself but to assess the berries and stuff and try and incorporate those in my diet while I'm out canoeing or whatever yeah i feel like oh, it's a waste it. waste of a trip if you don't uh if you don't pick some berries in prime berry picking season yeah same that's with fun. the foraging mushrooms right wild edible mushrooms yummy mm -hmm. yeah that's good so stuff. much fun yeah we're, like we're an easter egg hunt yeah we're, we just kind of uh began our, our journey into the foraging world the last couple of years here so we're still pretty uh pretty amateurish but um it's it's been an interesting kind of journey and it's, it's been fun to get outside in at those times and, and, uh, gives you more reason to get out and do something. Right. And, uh, yeah, cer certainly the, the, uh, fruits of the labor there are pretty awesome as well. Well, nature, that's what I like about nature. And that's what I like about my job is the learning curve is endless. I'm yeah. always, 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 always learning in nature Yeah, and in survival. Yeah. Chase, I, w I wanted to reflect on you're you're pretty green at mushroom picking and I'm even greener. But when when I was doing some of it this fall, an interesting thing happened to me when I was engaging in the, the actual like seeking mushrooms process. And it, it caused me to slow down and and yes. look and look at the ecology just a little bit differently. And I started to notice <laughs> things that I I instantly knew that I wasn't noticing before, like what was growing in that area, what the, the slope of the land was like, and maybe what, what was kind of rotting even. And uh, so I started to look at nature in a whole different way. And not only that, I felt like I was starting to understand, like, I mean, this is all kind of uh, rudimentary in some ways, but I was starting to understand the, the lay of the land in a, in a much different way. So it's interesting to see as your perspective shifts, you start to notice different things going on around you. And the more we kind of hunt fish and forage, the more we kind of pick up on these, these things that are happening around us. 
the the foraging has really uh <laughs> it's really changed my experience in the outdoors right now too because especially for the the mushroom side of things um for whatever reason berries don't seem to distract me as much but like i find lots of times when we're elk hunting or i'm walking through the deer woods or whatever and i'm just kind of looking and i see a mushroom i'm like oh i gotta check that out maybe it's something i can <laughs> put my pack and take home with me you know yeah. so it's, it's almost like a distraction but i i enjoy the the added uh i guess challenge or added uh benefits that that that's that's given me it's kind of neat now, I have a hard time covering a hundred yards when I'm in the bush. Yeah. Because <laughs> I'm stopping and looking and assessing and going, Oh, I might want to come back here. Maybe I should mark this on my GPS. Yeah. You yeah. don't want to miss something. Yeah. You don't miss nothing. Bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I would love to see the waypoints on that thing. That would be, uh... <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to see them. <laughs> okay. Okay. That's fair. That's Those fair. are going in the grave with you. Yeah. <laughs> Dave, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but I think Chase and I, just being part of the podcast, have started to see this kind of resurgence of folks wanting to to get outdoors more and just looking for a place to start. Are are you noticing on that on your end? And is like is your business like a, a good way to connect with kind of the, those starting blocks? We'll say. Well, I think so. I mean, uh, most people, if they're not doing it or they're not getting into it uh, now, then it's because they're fearful or uh of or they're it's just they lack the knowledge confidence right to get outdoors and this will definitely boost anyone's knowledge and confidence like the land navigation level one you get a functional knowledge of map compass and gps if you have the first aid training and a little bit of survival gear and training then you can go off trail and get into those back remote lakes mm-hmm and have some wild camping and and really see what nature is about, right? Like, mm-hmm. I agree, you know, stick to mostly trails, leave no trace kind of thing. But leave no trace is really impossible, right? Even the animals leave a trace. <laughs> yeah. So we just minimize the impact we can. But there's no reason why we can't go off trail and get back into those back lakes and do adventure. And yeah. this will give you the confidence to do it yeah. and skills. Yeah. Humans, humans are still part of the, the environment. Yes. Um, lots of people don't, don't realize that like we actually lived in harmony with nature how many years ago. Right. And, and, uh, so there is, like you said, an aspect of, of, uh, not being, uh, leave no traces is, is not an actual thing, but like you said, either try and try and, uh, clean something up from somebody else or, uh, just take care of your own stuff and, and that's all right. That's what I always do too. If I've got the room, I'm going to grab that garbage and take it out with me. Yeah. Even if somebody else left it. For sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention on, on the course too, on your courses as well, um, because I, I, I find like the, an, an added barrier for people to, to go and find the confidence, do the knowledge, like you said, is the education and people might be thinking like, wow, that's, Seems like it's cool, but what is it going to cost me? I, I And I find, like, your entry-level courses are very affordable, very accessible. You have done that on purpose or tried to do that on purpose anyway. Yeah. So yeah. It, it almost feels like, to me, you're actually providing a very affordable service for anybody who is interested in in uh, stepping up their, their knowledge and training in the outdoors industry. And I'm sure even if Tristan and I took those basic courses, we, we would gain quite a bit of knowledge from that as well. 
Yeah, I think you would save quite a bit of money too, just on equipment. <laughs> right? Don't, or you'd be like, that. why did I spend all this money on all this yeah. gear when yeah. all I needed was this? Let me tell you about the the Rubbermaid tubs that I have sitting in the garage full of shit that yeah. I'll never probably use. <laughs> I got them too. I got them too. Because you got to yeah. try it, right? But, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, just, just the, like, I don't even sell the equipment. A couple of hard to find things like the emergency signal mirror because it's a good quality and they're hard to find. Um, and the down but not out survival book is another thing that we offer uh, because the military stopped printing it and they were like $500 or something on Jeez. eBay, the original copy. So I had it reprint, got permission and reprinted it. Hmm. Um, oh but there's also an equipment list there, tried and tested equipment. Uh, multiple users under harsh conditions and this gear stands up mm -hmm. and it's exactly what I carry. Um, and I don't sell any of it. You can go on and buy it pretty much anywhere in an outdoor store, hardware stores, grocery stores, some of it. Right. Yeah. But that, uh, that list is there for people to draw from um, for good quality equipment, not mm -hmm. top quality equipment, good quality equipment. Mm -hmm. That's a, that's a lesson I'm continuing continuously learning is every time I go afield, um, I find if I cheap out on gear, especially in Manitoba here, when it gets frigid, frigid temperatures, uh, that gear either breaks or it malfunctions or it's not. And when I'm that far away from home, I don't want to go all that way and have my stuff just break down on me and not be, I'm just carrying a paperweight again at that point in time. And um, so I'd rather almost just pay that, whether it's double the price or whatever, just to have the item function as it's intended. Um, mind you, when that does happen, I get red enough in the face that I produce my own body heat uh, long enough. To... <laughs> I bet, eh? <laughs> yeah. I bet. Yeah, but uh, well, it, it is worth noting to have a list of reliable gears. I, I could I can imagine that in and of itself would be um, indispensable. Like like just take for instance a compass. I've had compasses last me 15, 20 years, right? That's but I, mean, I bought I bought a fairly expensive compass, right? Like a Santo MC two or a Silv the old Silver Rangers. Um, and last year, 15, 20 years, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I've, uh, it's, it's amazing, especially when I'm going elk hunting or something like that in, in some big woods, you know, like you said, mentioned earlier, being, being in the woods on a cloudy day is really tough. Cause you don't have the, the sunlight for, uh, for reference. Right. And, uh, I, I feel my, my fear of getting lost without a compass in my pack because I've, I've gone into the bush knowing that I, I don't have my compass because whatever, I misplaced it. I don't know where it is, but I'm going hunting this day anyways. And my, my, my like uh, anxiety level is extremely heightened <laughs> because, you know, without the compass, that's, that's your backup. Right. And, um, you can, you can generally find your way back to a, a road no matter what, but it's, it's, uh, not having that, that, that fact that, comfort factor there with that yeah that one little piece of equipment is is incredible yeah it's a great feeling to know that you can actually walk out in the general direction of your vehicle yeah right like with my gps as soon as i get out of my off my vehicle or whatever i start heading the bush i mark its location my vehicle right whatever transportation it is i mark it and then i go do my thing and then all i gotta do is press go to put that bearing on my compass and then walk mm -hmm. back to my vehicle. 
on that bearing. Yeah. So much easier. Yeah. Sometimes I'll even do an intentional offset because sometimes um, when you walk back to your vehicle, you end up drifting left or right. But if I do like a five degree offset, I know I'm going left of my vehicle. And when I hit the trail, I just turn right and my vehicle will be along there somewhere. Yeah. Close by. One thing, one thing I found that helps me a lot too when I'm going through the bush. If I'm going point A to point B and then back to point A, is uh, first off not spending a lot of time looking down at at a phone or something like that, but also taking the time to look up and look around at your surroundings and look back at where you're coming from because it is different than what you're looking ahead of you going into the woods. And because uh, I've 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 been there times too where I've either been turned around in the bush or on cloudy days and you're spending too much time looking and not looking around you and you're trying to find your way back and it's it's difficult if you don't have an idea of what that looks like yeah the gps i just get a bearing and distance off it and then i shut it off again so i'm not looking at it yeah and i typically don't get maps on my gps neither because if i'm using that map on there it's going to kill my battery in no time in cold weather that's true Interesting. Right? So yeah. I usually have a paper map if I can of an area. Yeah, yeah. Which are easy to get a one in fifty thousand topographical map mm-hmm. of the area you're going to be working in. Yeah, I, I've done this a few times, and I know Chase has too, where we've maybe followed snake through a few game trails um, deep in deep into the woods, and then we hit the the go to function once we're a kilometer or two back, and get off that game trail and all of a sudden I'm in some of the thickest stuff I've, yeah. <laughs> I've ever found myself in. So I, I could say, well, the go-to might get you there. It's, it's uh, definitely added some challenges to in, in, in some ways as well, or I've hit a ravine uh, where, where we hunt up near the Hills and it's like, okay, that's, I can see where the crow flies, but I can't see where the, where the human walks kind of scenario. So and that's where that topographical map really comes in handy because you can do a quick reconnaissance of the terrain between you and your intended destination. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you'll see the ravine and you'll be able to steer around it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's so on the app too, we have with iHunter too, we have that topo map and it's just, a, nice. it's a, it's a really helpful tool. So, and I, I was wondering too, we've, we've been chatting about gear and stuff, but, um, what how how do your your intro courses go there dave let's pretend like i'm someone who's only picked up a butter knife in their time and i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna come into your course and what what can i expect on the you know what can i what's the day gonna look like how how long are we gonna be there and um are you gonna make me jump in the river or what's what's it gonna look like there <laughs> well it depends it depends with which course you take if you're doing the <laughs> covert survival yeah you do have to do a water crossing Cool. But uh, <laughs> um, no, the wilderness safety and survival level one is about eight hours long. It's about 80% classroom, getting all that important information like um, psychology of survival, clothing and equipment, um, first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food, um, the search and rescue system, how it works. Um, and then we go outside for 20%, which is fire and signals. And we use the emergency signal mirror and a few other things. And then we also get into the fire lecture and learn about the fire triangle. And everybody gets to use a ferro rod and strike matches and all that good stuff. So they learn how to do it properly. 
or different techniques in case one doesn't uh, work in this situation. The level two is all outdoors. Eight hours, we go through the survival pattern. First aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food. We do like a lean-to with a tarp. We do fire starting. Um, we move the fire. You work in teams of two, building your own shelter. Um, you'll build a squirrel snare. Um, a bunch of other things, put a ground-to-air signals. The level three is with an overnight in pairs. So is the level twos in pairs. <coughs> The level three is with an overnight in pairs, one person sleeping while the other person is up keeping a watch out for searchers because we're supposed to be in a survival situation. So somebody mm -hmm. needs to be awake at all times if we can. Mm -hmm. And we'll do the buddy system in pairs. And then the next day we go through first aid, fire, shelter, signals, water, food again, different techniques, different shelters, smoke generator, squirrel or a rabbit drag pole snare. Um, and some more wild edible walks. The level four is kind of um, your self-check or self-evaluation. So we do two days of training. We go through the survival pattern again. You stay in a different shelter and all that again. And then you do a three-day solo with a checklist of projects or things that you need to accomplish. Those are like light, maintain a continuous fire build an emergency shelter using the basic principles, build two ground to air signals, build a smoke generator, find four food sources, find a water source and method of purification. And you're out there for 72 hours. So I check on you the first night to make sure you're not curled up in the fetal position. <laughs> and then we do radio checks after that until um, the end of the 72 hours where I come in and do an assessment of your solo survival situation so I, i'm guessing me curled up in a ball in blaze orange is not a rescue signal um, that you teach <laughs> no you need to be doing the starfish <laughs> <laughs> with the blaze orange on for it to be a signal okay that's good to know um, i'm and i'm also guessing though after that 72 hours a lot of students uh are coming out feeling like they've accomplished something and that they they the, the confidence level has got to be a little higher than going into that scenario. Yeah. The confidence levels typically through the roof after that, they're like, yeah, I can't wait to get out now. I feel very confident in my abilities, knowledge and my equipment. Yeah. And then they'll get out and, and adventure more. For That's sure. awesome. And then in your intro course, you mentioned something that we haven't chatted about much, but the, uh, the psychology of survival and, uh, I'm guessing that's almost like 50% of the battle, if not more, is uh, what For your sure. what your outlook is when you're you're in those situations. Can you just touch on that quickly? Like, how important is the psychological factor when we're preparing to either go outdoors or survive in the outdoors? Well, we have both physiological enemies of survival and psychological enemies of survival that we have to overcome, and we use the STOP acronym to overcome those, and we use the survival pattern to assist us in overcoming those or mitigating the effects. Um, so psychological fear, anxiety, uh, anger, frustration, which we've talked about these quite a bit in scenarios we've all gotten into, um, loneliness and boredom, you know, again, all those can be combated using these survival patterns, staying busy. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And then the physiological cold, hunger, fatigue, again, 
if we use a survival pattern for state fire shelter signals water food we can overcome those physiological enemies as well yeah so kind of keep busy keep moving uh maybe not moving from your your shelter but keep keep the mind busy keep the body busy and hopefully you're you're going to come out on the other end of this thing yeah always try and better your survival situation make your shelter better make your wood supply better make your food supply better all of that good stuff yeah yeah prepare for the worst yeah for sure yeah. pray for pray for sun and uh plan for rain um dave with all your years into kind of not only the training but the practice and kind of rescue uh applications I, i'm guessing you, you've come close to a, a few situations that either make your hair stand up on the back of your neck or uh or ones you'll think about uh for the rest of your life can you can you recall some of those like what are some of the like the either the close encounters or really moments in survival that stand out in your mind with all your experience um a couple i guess uh doing uh center hatch hoisting out of the helicopter and i see the flight or the flight engineer trying to wave me away from the helicopter in a panic and i ran and just as i was running the helicopter came down hard Ooh. Ooh. so i almost got chopped into little bitsy pieces there <laughs> um because they had a massive hydraulic leak and they had to get it down quickly uh what else so oh uh backcountry trip up in uh what am i thinking uh, atakaki provincial park yeah on sleds and uh in a remote lake and we went to the inlets of the lake to f hopefully find some better fishing. And I got a really bad feeling as we were driving along by sled and I just pinned the throttle and raced past my buddy and got him to follow me up on shore. And then we went back with the ice auger afterwards, went down to the ice, drilled a hole and uh, the water was at least a foot or two below the bottom of the ice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the ice was only about four inches, five inches thick and was not very good ice mm -hmm. conditions. If we would have went through there, we would have been lake trout bait. Yeah. <laughs> lake trout food, man, because there was no way to recover from that situation. Yeah, because I, I, I guess you're not only are you having to climb up on, it would essentially be hollow ice at that point in time. Eh? So how do you get yeah. up back on and top? Rushing, of and rushing water wow fast moving water underneath yeah yeah that that stuff freaks me out too i know even just yeah. we're, in we're in lockport here and even just thinking about going through on the river the, the the current alone would i don't i don't even know what you do um one of our got our buddies is a fire fire uh man said when they train to do rescues they're they're tied in and everything and yeah they get pinned against the ice as soon as they hit the water so it's uh it's such a powerful thing those rivers so you have to be extra careful i guess eh, on on any kind of moving water yeah and that's why i give the that incident is pretty much why i give the cold water immersion course up at pine point falls and you're in there you're harnessed in you got a helmet on but you're just going in the clothes that you would normally wear mm -hmm. yeah and we have a rescue swimmer in with you as well um with a helmet and a dry suit on and all the rest of it and he's harnessed in or they're harnessed in as well and roped in but you get out the first time um, unassisted. So you get out with no assistance at all and try and see how it's hard, man. It's difficult mm. to get out if you're not carrying the proper tools. Mm. And then you get out self-assisted 
with ice picks and you learn how to do that so you get it under control mm-hmm. and then maybe you'll start carrying them when you're out on the ice very handy thing to <laughs> yeah. have i'm writing you it know? down right now yeah and then you get in a third time and you get out assisted with a throw rope or a long pole somebody extends a long green staff to you and helps pull you out but some people man love it and they're like okay i want to go in with hip waders on i want to go in with <laughs> yeah, chest yeah. waders on I want to go in with cross country skis on. I want to go in with my snowshoes on because that's usually what I'm wearing when I'm out in the lakes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right? interesting. It's good to and, be prepared. Yeah. Dave, I'm not sure if you can tell in case I ever take that immersion course with you, but I, I'm wearing my wetsuit right now and I, I wear it everywhere I go. So if I show up to that immersion <laughs> course in a wetsuit, that just know that's what I always wear. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm sure through the, through the years here, Dave, you, you've had, uh, I mean, you probably look through incidents in newspaper and think, man, I wish somebody would have came to my course and I could have, could have helped them out, whether better their situation or just help them out of, uh, uh, perishing. But, um, I'm sure you also get lots of success stories coming down the pipe from you, from lots of these folks that maybe never thought they could, uh, get out of a situation or just how how you've helped them out in their in their daily lives just uh giving them the confidence to to go out in the bush and and enjoy nature and stuff like that are are there any stories that come to mind in that respect that you, you could share with us well a lot of people really love the training of course um you know it survival's not really fun but you can you make yourself somewhat comfortable mm-hmm. um and people express that to me and then they have the confidence and then I once had a guy who came, his uh, company paid for them, a couple of them to come on our wilderness safety and survival levels one, two, and three. And then he was up north on the ice road working and he came across the motor vehicle collision uh, just before dark. um, And both vehicles weren't working and there was injured parties in both vehicles, the transport truck and the SUV. And he said the training they taught him kicked in. He did the first aid assessment and all that. He got a fire going. He made a shelter. Uh, he phoned and called for help. Uh, help was like four or six hours it took them to get to them. Jeez. Um, and he got food going and he got water going and got everybody tea and warm, kept them warm and comfortable, kept reassessing, doing first aid, said it was exceptional. And he said he used most, neither one of those vehicles had survival gear so he used all the survival gear basically that we had uh told him he should carry no kidding yeah so he said it was amazing he said it didn't really help him but it helped somebody else which is great yeah which is even better to be honest with you if you can if it's it's pretty pretty tough to be part of a situation as well and and not be able to help or or uh not know what to do properly so having those skills not only benefits yourself but other situations in your life as well as a perfect example right there. Um, we've talked a lot about your courses and what you do. Why don't you tell people where we can find you at? Okay. So uh, you can go online and just look up survivalbytraining.com. We have all our course listings there. We even have the wilderness safety and survival level one online now. Um, so you can do that online, which is 80% classroom anyway. Mm-hmm. you're really only missing the 20% outdoors, which you can go out and do yourself after you review the material uh, quite easily. You'll even know what equipment to buy. <laughs> um, and then uh, we're also on Instagram. 
survival by training as well. And then we're on Facebook as well, ICSOS.inc, I-N-C. Um, send us an email, contact us, especially the Instagram. I always try and make it educational. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with our Facebook posts. It'll be about search and rescue, rescues that happened, reports and stuff. And then also I try and make that uh, educational as well. Amazing. I think I seen you a couple of years ago at the Manitoba Outdoor Show. Are you, getting, uh, are you planning on being there again? In the future yeah we're going to be there again uh, hopefully if it happens for awesome. sure awesome. we'd love to be there tristan any last thoughts before we uh, take off pal uh no just really appreciated coming on this is a fun conversation and uh I'm, I'm wondering dave if you have any kind of last second tidbits here for folks especially uh, a lot of our audience would be uh, hunters and fishers that you know regularly engage in and bushcraft um but i i'm thinking even t- with myself sometimes my comfort level um gets a rude awakening when when the complacency sets in a little so are there any tips that you'd just like to share with folks as they uh continue to pursue their hobbies outdoors uh on how to stay safe or keep survival front of mind uh just the personal safety triangle again um seek first aid training uh, carry the proper equipment with you, first aid equipment. I typically don't buy the pre-made first aid kits. Mm-hmm. I piece mine together um, because I then I know what I have and I know it's good equipment. Um, seek out some type of professional survival training and carry the proper equipment to avoid injuries and be prepared. And learn navigation skills, especially if you're a hunter even boaters, you know, flying small aircraft, uh, mushroom picking, whatever you're doing, if you're out in the woods, navigation skills will prevent survival situations. That's it. I mean, that personal safety triangle is the way to go. Yeah, it's a good reminder because I've been off path a few times and uh, luckily I have some of those skills to fall back on. But I've I've thought to myself, man, even, even walking in the marsh a few times, how easy would it be to get turned around? And uh, all of a sudden, a bad situation just got worse. So, um, yeah, the, the the navigating one, I can definitely attest to for sure. Mm-hmm. I just want to thank you guys and your listeners. And it was great talking to you. Yeah. I love to hear the experiences. Are you guys okay if I use some of those experiences you're talking about when I'm teaching my courses? Oh, yeah. Use whatever you like, man. <laughs> I, love the, I love the storytelling, right? Yeah. It really sets things home and puts them in perspective for people exactly yeah, if you want us to, to come and explain how quickly stuff can go sideways on a, on a, <laughs> on a rushing river we we have experience in that so we're uh, we're more than happy to share that story <laughs> nice yeah all right dave well thanks again for coming on and uh i'm sure we'll be chatting with you again soon in the future take care guys thanks for having me And that's a wrap for episode 107 today, folks. Thanks again, Dave, for coming out and having a chat with us. I think, uh, I think, likely going to have another chat with him. And and I would just like to go out and and uh, do a couple of these courses with him. Maybe do a, a team panoramic weekend out with with Dave and knock a couple of these suckers off. And I think it'd be a good learning experience just just heading out there with them. 
Man, how cool would that be? Yeah. And I, I was thinking about just hopping in on some of his courses too, just because they, I know there's areas I could shore up, but yeah, that, that'd be awesome to be able to do something with Dave in, uh, in person. The, uh, the other part I was appreciating throughout the podcast, I was noticing is that, uh, I get the sense that there's not a lot of bullshit with, uh, with Dave is <laughs> you, you kind of get this, this straight shot, uh, no matter what. Right. So, which is, in my opinion, something that's probably really valuable from someone teaching that content, right? You don't want to beat around the bush on a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So uh, I was very appreciative of a lot of, not just the knowledge, but the approach that he was able to bring to that teaching. So yeah. Yeah. Cool to see. Very practical format. Seems like. Um, Besides that, we got some uh, little store update for everyone. Our green crew neck hoodies are crew neck sweaters not hoodies are uh back in stock and our uh our black goose hoodies are back in stock as well full stock on them right now the green hoodies sold out super fast last time again so um if you're interested please don't hesitate to grab some while you're there grab a coffee cup and uh enjoy a cup of coffee on the ice or at the kitchen kitchen table with our camp cups um and i do i do love that green crew neck that's one of my favorites I'd, I'd say yeah i got i have the gray i'm actually wearing the camel crew neck right now and uh they've become an essential piece of clothing over the over the the winter here and they're probably one of the most comfortable pieces of clothing i own mm-hmm. they're pretty sweet but other than that hopefully we'll see you out on the ice this this uh winter and uh if you're heading out to Big Windy, make sure you stop at Harvester Outdoors to stock up on some bait and tackle before you hit that big lake. Yeah, they got they got it there for you, Chase. You uh, you're you're picking up some electronics too from there, eh? Oh man, uh, working with Sean is such a pleasurable experience. I don't know whoever knows Sean will 100% hop on board um, with that comment, but if you don't know. Uh, Sean Johnson, he's the owner of Harvester Outdoors. Uh, pretty awesome guy to deal with. Um, brings in quality products to the store. So um, most of the stuff he has there is just like stuff that, you know, he would likely be using out fishing. And uh, I, I had to uh, pick up some new electronics off him. So he's a, he's a Garmin dealer. So he's, I picked up the... Garmin Striker Vivid Seven, Ooh-wee. I believe is the uh, the full title of that one. And uh, so got he didn't have any in stock. Ordered me in the ice package with the transducer that it can also attach to the boat. So I'm super pumped about this. It is going to be a game changer for the ice fishing season. I think this year and and going into the boat. So super awesome. pumped that I can transfer that from the ice to the boat. And, uh, you know, there's no, there's no disconnect in the, uh, electronic world there for me. You're a Garmin guy now, or again, you were a Garmin guy with, the with the GPS, I remember, but, uh, now now you're back in team Garmin. Yeah. Funny story with Sean there. I I remember the first time I stepped into Harvester and was going to just pick up a few odds and ends. And he was, he was so nice to me that I thought he was trying to sell me something, but I I didn't actually, (laughs) didn't actually grab anything that day uh but just working with him throughout the 
throughout all our dealings now because i do stop there regularly to to grab odds and ends and or like larger stuff like your garmin there and f- fair warning like sean's just that nice you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like he is if if you're in there and he's really nice yeah that's just the way <laughs> sean is because yeah. uh he, he's worked with us on a few things and he's just like a top tier guy so yeah uh, well you got your uh your uh e-collar from him Right. Yeah, I got my you call like he's he's easy to work with if if he if he can get something in for you, he's gonna do that and he's gonna do it uh as quickly as possible. So and the the e caller I'm running with Willie there is what I've been using ever since and it's just uh again another Garmin and so uh top top notch product actually. Yeah. Yeah. So right on. So don't forget Harvester Outdoors on your way out to hit the lake. Thanks again for listening, folks. Uh, And we'll see you on the next episode. Yeah. Remember to to de-ice your lines. eh? You don't want to get that ice in your your eyelets. That's that's a very important tip, too. Yeah. Check the propane tanks. Yeah. Make sure they're full. Minus 30. Keep keep those warm. Close those valves, too. If they they freeze open, then you're in trouble, eh? So (laughs) we'll see you on the ice, folks.